Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Bosch, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Frederick Fauvet about their new book, Handbook of Research on Applying Universal Design for Learning Across Disciplines, Concepts, Case Studies, and Practical Implementation. This book delves into what fans will recognize by the acronym UDL, Universal Design for Learning a framework that has been hailed for over three decades as a revolutionary lens that allows educational environments to shift their efforts away from reactionary individualized remediation and towards inclusive design at the outset. This book offers practical examples of UDL having successfully been embedded in courses within various disciplines and classroom formats, as well as the undergraduate and graduate sectors. Dr. Fauvet, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for the invitation. And we are especially excited to have you today because this is an interview that's being conducted with Dr. Kimberly Coy in tandem. Would you like to just say hello? Hello, and thank you for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you all for joining. This makes it more fun. And we're also being, um, we have in attendance students from Fresno State. Woohoo! And so uh, they will be able to ask questions after we've conducted the interview, but I just wanted to give them a shout out and say thank you to all of them for being educators and being interested. Um, All right, so to get this started, um, Dr. Fauvet, will you tell us a bit about yourself with a focus on your educational journey and your journey to publishing this book, particularly as it came out last year in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? Thanks. Yeah, so um, I would say I consider myself as a, a UDL um, researcher, scholar, and practitioner. I came to the um, area of inclusion from different avenues uh, in my life, as sometimes happens. You don't always see the, the cohesiveness of your journey till you get till, to midpoint and you see the, the threads coming together. So I was actually a lawyer in a previous life, and that gave me the first, the first sort of hat and a sort of legal, um, a legal perspective on, on equity issues and social justice issues from, from, from a purely legal um, sort of perspective. And then I had a career break there, decided to go back to education. Uh, I worked in the area of, uh, so I was in England at the time of what's called social emotional behavior difficulties, which I think in the US is more known as EBD. Um, and I was in that, um, in that field, both in terms of scholarship and in terms of practice, because I was actually a teacher in a school for students with, with EBD uh, and then became a principal uh, of a school really catering to the needs of students with EBD for about 11 years of my career. Uh, and then from then on, I uh, decided to go into the PhD and I wanted to continue working while I was doing the PhD, and, but I wanted to leave the field to have a bit more distance on what I was doing because I was writing about K-12. So I decided to move into post-secondary and I took on the, the, the role of um, of accessibility basically at Miguel University for four years during a PhD and that was really important for me because I had so up to then been working on inclusion from an ecological perspective and I'm sure we'll have a chance to to talk about that 
But that added a sort of layer in terms of disability studies and looking at uh, similar issues, but looking at them from a disability studies lens. Um, and after that, I became faculty. So I've worked three years in, on, on the University of Prince Edward Island at East, and I'm, I've been for three years at Royal Roads University at, uh, at Western BC. I've done both sides of the country. Working, again, mostly in inclusion, but I would say that more and more, I oversee a program at the moment, which is a master's in education, leadership, and management. So I find that more and more the contemporary uh, questions now is not no longer just how do, you, how do you achieve inclusion in the classroom, but how do you lead for inclusion? So how do we tackle organizational institutional uh, challenges around creating um, that culture and creating those provisions? Um, and then right through, there was a thread around universal design for learning, which I'm sure we're going to um, have a chance to talk about today, which came up uh, in many, uh, you know, I think I was using it with students with challenging behaviors without having necessarily the vocabulary for it. And then it's when I got into disability studies that I really had access to the framework itself and a certain discourse that's shared by many other scholars around the world. Um, and now, uh, you know, I continue to use it uh, fairly extensively, but as I'm sure we'll talk about today, I also see its limits that sometimes we have to also see other frameworks that complement it um, so that we can go um, beyond, uh, certainly beyond just disability and impairment to, to consider inclusion from a variety of perspectives. So uh, we may, and I'm sure we'll talk about this today, have to combine it and, and look at the overlap with other um, sort of theoretical frameworks. Fantastic. Thank you for that overview. And I should have mentioned in the beginning, just in this, you know, virtual and audio world, where we're coming in from. So I mentioned uh, that uh, we're here in the Central Valley in California, in the States, and you are somewhere in Canada, forgive me. <laughs> I'm in BC. I'm in uh, Victoria, so on West Coast, uh, West Coast, BC. So same, same time zone as you are, but straight north. Yeah, just uh, fantastic. By the and same latitude as Seattle. Yeah. Great, thank you for that orientation. And of course, all of us are on unceded indigenous land. So um, yes, you mentioned, we're gonna talk a little bit about UDL. Let's get right into that. You give an introduction to it in the handbook, um, uh, in the handbook being uh, your recently published book. In the second half of that first chapter, you provide an overview of some of the remaining challenges for research and practice in terms of UDL. We'll get to that, but just to make sure that everybody knows what we're talking about, give us your, your UDL elevator pitch and help us break down what exactly universal design for learning means. Uh, definitely. It's actually a lot harder than and it appears because I think if you do a quick Google search of UDL, you get, uh, well, a few years back, you already had a couple of millions, you know, results right away. Um, there's conflicting views as to what it is. And I, I'd say I'm not necessarily a purist. I, I don't necessarily go back to a sort of rigid, you know, definition of what it is. I think for me, it makes sense to contextualize it right away by looking at um, this term inclusion that we have, which really means very different things for very different people. Um, you know, and some of the big threads that appear within the, the field of inclusion are people who, again, come at, come at it from a, a legal perspective, from a human rights perspective. Other people come uh, to it from, um, you know, a sort of biophysiological perspective, certainly when it comes to, to you know, to impairment and disability. Others look at it from either an ecological perspective, et cetera. Um, it, some look at it from a philosophical perspective, simply saying, you know, it's something we should do, that the, the classroom should be a microcosm for, for the society. That's the Salamanca statement was often known as the, the grounding for that philosophical approach. So I think the result is that we can often actually be talking at cross purposes and not talking about the same thing at all. So within this term of inclusion, that's where I would contextualize UDL and saying it's probably for me, 
the only approach which moves away um, irretrievably from a deficit model approach, uh, because it takes the focus away from any student who sees as exceptional and places the focus instead on the designer of the learning experience. So saying really there's no such thing as exceptionality, we should take it for granted, it's there, it's a given, it's granted, it's in all of our classroom. It's really up to us to be designing inclusively. So I think it's a big shift. And I tend to say it translates the social model of disability in saying really that, you know, that uh, disability is not in the individual, but it's in the interaction of the individual with, with the context and the environment. So I think UDL is out of all the models that we have, you know, um, individualized learning, differentiation, et cetera. Um, I think it's the only model that has that characteristic of saying from the get-go, it's not about the learner. It's not about stressing the exceptionality of the learner. It's actually about looking at the design of the learning experience. And that places a focus right back on us as educators, not on the students having to fit in or having to demonstrate or anything or having to you know, self-identify as having a, a need. Um, so that, that would be uh, the essence of it. And as this only model within the world of inclusion that does this, again, as I said, it translates, in my eyes, it translates the social model of disability, saying that really impairment disability, well, impairment and disability are not, such, are not so much a, an inherent quality of the individual, but it's a relational sort of interactional um, experience between our individual embodiment. And I think there's about 21 of 23 of you here. If we had the time, we would go through and each of you would say that there's there's something that makes you exceptional. There's, there's an embodiment that you have, which is specific to you that is not common to all other people. But the lucky ones of us are in a situation where that, that embodiment doesn't clash with the expectations of the environment, the design expectations of the environment or the design expectation of the classroom. So that's what UDL does. It really puts the, 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 the spotlight back on the educator to saying, considering diversity in all, in, in all of our classrooms, what can you do to design inclusively so that students will not have an experience of disability in their everyday experiences within the classroom? Does that satisfy you in terms of overall big umbrella? <laughs> that was wonderful. And I wanna just highlight a couple of things that, I, that you mentioned too, that I think are useful for listeners who may be tuning in from all over. One is that I feel like there's an implicit idea of the teacher as a designer and not just a sort of sage on the stage, right? And that might be interesting for folks who are new to the profession or getting into it because there's also increasingly this, this overlap between the idea of designing learning experiences in classrooms and brick and mortar schools, but also, especially in the wake of the pandemic, online for educational technology, et cetera. So I wanted to lift that up and you mentioned the word design a lot and obviously universal design for learning, but as you say, puts the, the spotlight sort of back on the teacher and also on the teacher as in this other sort of role as more of a designer of an environment. And you mentioned a couple, you mentioned models. So I also just wanted to highlight for folks that, you know, in the States and in California, we have general ed versus special ed model. This is a typical model in many countries. Every state in the, in the US may have a slightly different twist on that as California does similar with, with countries, right? Different approaches to sort of classifying students according to disability type. And earlier you had mentioned disability studies in your intro. That's a very different approach to understanding disability than we get in the special ed, general ed dichotomy. So just, you know, to sort of make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. And you also briefly mentioned, though you've alluded to it a bunch, the social model of disability. Would you just 
bring us all on board to like what that means. Absolutely. So the social model of disability is some, it's a model that's actually been around for, for quite a few decades. Um, uh, the difficulty with the social model is that people often not do it from an academic perspective, but often find it very difficult to um, embrace it and adopt it in, in everyday situation. But really, it's again saying that disability is not an inherent characteristic of an individual or an inherent uh, label of an individual, but it, it, it is a, a perception and experience that is created in a sort of lack of fit or friction between an, an, an individual embodiment and an environment or an experience or a service or product that has not been designed inclusively enough to allow uh, seamless use and seamless, a seamless experience. So it is a social construct instead of saying, you know, it's especially when we look at special ed, as you said, which can be very divisive. I'm sure we'll come back on that today. On one hand, it's, it's, it comes from a human rights perspective saying, you know, we have to look at the equity of these students, but at the same time, it also categorizes and labels them as being exceptional, different than, than the norm, different than the, the, the mainstream classroom. Uh, a social model of disability approach is going to be very different in the sense of saying that any of us or any student is able to experience uh, a feeling of disability if they are placed in an environment that is not designed to integrate and adapt to their own, to their to their embodiment and their needs and their, their objectives and their wants. Um, and so it is going to be a really revolutionary um, concept for teachers. I find it's a pity that often we don't talk about the social model enough in pre-service teaching because I find in in in-service teaching, often teachers have a eureka moment because they've never really thought about that. You know, we're so entrenched in coding and labeling because of funding. Obviously, we work within a, a social historical context where that that those categories are necessary because it gives us access to funding. But at the same time, that sort of entrenches us in a system that perpetuates this label. You know, labeling. And in a way, I'll quickly say stigmatization as well, because once you are identified as being different and identified as being exceptional, it's going to be very different to, to, to prevent discrimination and prevent um, stigmatization and particularly prevent loss of social capital in the classroom. Because if you're different, you don't interact with others in the same way. Often you don't have the same opportunities and therefore often you lose social capital. You lose opportunities that your peers have because they are not seen as different. They are not seen as exceptional. Um, so you said you lose social, what was the word you used? Uh, social model of disability? Uh, you said, did you say social capital? Social capital, yeah. So social capital being this notion that schools don't just, uh, are not just a place of, of acquisition of competencies and skills, but they are also a form where people develop social capital. So social capital in a nutshell, and they are varying definition of social capital, is the notion that um, when we're in environments such as schools, we form networks and that the width and the richness of these networks are a real value. That's why it's a capital. It's a real asset once we leave school that enables us to uh, integrate society, function adequately, have access to opportunities, whether social or, or, or work, um, and really, it's if you think about it, it's not such a surprise. You know, if people have been paying private tuition in private schools for so long, I don't think parents necessarily have the the mythical idea that the, you know teaching is so different there that it's worth forty thousand dollars. But they very well know that it gives you access to contacts and, and opportunities that you may not have in another environment. And that's really already the, the you know an acknowledgement of social capital. But I think schools are coming to realize that. It, it, it's it's just as important really as the acquisition of competencies and that we are also designing environments where students can be um, you know um, supported as they form social capital and develop social capital or we can be the architects of schools where students are not able to do that so that's again where UDL comes in 
and that's why that this notion of inclusion in an authentic way where everyone is in a whole class approach and the strategies are used indiscriminately for everyone in the classroom is going to be very important because that's going to give the students access to full opportunities for social capital development. Yeah, along those lines, I want to also just sort of pause and, and uh, lift up that there's a difference too, right, between identities that you claim and you bring into a learning space, which could include disability identity or identities. There's a difference between that and then having that imposed on you, right, through a system or a, a, a different group, right, that you don't necessarily share that membership with. And I think... <clears throat> that is maybe a good segue too. And, and some of this, the stuff you were just mentioning about social capital, because a lot of times the social capital that we get is coming from or is contingent on the groups that we're members of, right? That determines too, like what's valued and whatnot. So could you talk a little bit about, I know there's some, there's some of this in, in your initial chapter in the book on implementing UDL beyond disability, particularly since in the Central Valley, there's rich, rich diversity in terms of linguistic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, nationalities, ethnicities, races, et cetera. I feel like that's a good segue to get into what, what you sort of mean by that implementation of UDL beyond disability. Absolutely. And I think that section in my, in my chapter is a, a sort of self-reflected um, and self-critical look, because I think as, as UDL advocates, even though for a long time now, I think all UDL advocates have been saying it's not just about disability, it's not just about impairment, we are still very much always bringing this up in a, in a context of, of, of special ed, more specifically a context of impairment and, and, and disability. So uh, I think that's the next frontier is how do we break uh, away from that? How do we push UDL to be useful in a wider context? And, and more generally, how does the inclusion discourse do that as well, right? Move away from just, um, just the notion of, of you know, impairment and disability in the classroom, but look at beyond that and establishing provisions that work for the, the broad diversity of students in our classroom. It, it is um, both easy and difficult because I think if you look at the three, the three UDL principles broadly, I think there's ample room there to apply that to, um, to students of, you know, of, 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 of wide diversity generally. An exercise I tend to do with my master's students, you know, you say, okay, how can you use the three UDL principles to create uh, inclusive provisions for students uh, from LGBTQ to S plus, um, you know, communities? And we do that as an exercise and there's always a stall, but what do you mean? Why would we use UDL? And then when you use this design thinking, you realize that that design thinking works for whatever aspect of diversity really you're looking at. Um, so I think the problem is not necessarily the framework itself, but it's the sort of uh, inherent resistance that we build that we always take the discourse back to, okay, it's about disability and it's about, it's about impairment. So there's a really a change of mindset um, which is required. And I think that's, that's difficult because again, uh, because of the um, pervasive sort of special ed sort of labels and disciplines, et cetera, we are always pushed back to looking at inclusion in a very narrow way, looking just at, uh, you know, impairment and, and, and disability. Uh, and, and especially now with, a, you know, a heavy focus on cognitive, on, on cognitive uh, sort of uh, exceptionality, et cetera. Um, and really, we should start looking at it much more broadly. So obviously, um, I think race is the first thing that comes to mind. And, it, and there has been a lot of discourse about, for example, how to uh, you know, widen the UDL uh, implementation to include uh, inclusion for racialized students. But I think we also have to look at uh, second language learners, uh, culturally diverse learners. For us, uh, certainly in, in, in Canada, it's part of the truth and reconciliation 
commission objectives? How do we also create inclusive provisions for indigenous students? So all of these areas really are areas where UDL is going to be just as important. But we need the will to be to be wanting to put the focus uh, on the use of UDL within within these environments, uh, and that's what needs to change. It's really a change in mindset and and getting teachers to be more comfortable pushing that reflection beyond um, just the, the usual sort of categories of, of, you know, of disability and impairment that they encounter in, this, in, the, in the classroom. Now, obviously, we've got to look at this from a legal perspective as well. There's in, in both Canada and, and, and the, in the US, there's very strong legal protections for individuals with, with uh, you know, disability. And that has been the momentum that has ensured uh, that we look at inclusion, you know, ferociously from that perspective. Uh, but I mean, race is also protected, uh, you know, cultural diversity is also legally protected. So I think now we need to look at, uh, you know, these other environments too, even if the, the teeth of the legislation are not as strong, but seeing that these are also objectives that we need to incorporate in our vision of inclusion. That's beautiful. Thank you. And that, of course, also reminds me of disability justice and the critique, right, that relying on the legal system to ensure equitable access and participation in education or in society and social systems privileges those who are most able to sort of maneuver and benefit from the legal system, which is oftentimes going to already be folks who have the most sort of privilege within, within the, in the society. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I'd love to also just sort of touch on, you have uh, some, some stuff on UDL and field education, which is what everyone here is doing. So uh, I I'm happy to open the door to some critiques, uh, especially once we're, you know, doing Q&A at the end. But tell us a little bit about what that could mean, what it usually does mean, UDL and field education. Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, we have a, we have a chapter that looks at shell placements for social work students and then uh, another chapter that looks at, uh, at um, a field uh, education for um, health, health uh, students. Um, and I think we could definitely, you know, there was no chapter um, sort of contributed about um, field education for um, pre-service teachers, but that would be very much the same, the same premise and the same sort of challenges. I think we've done very well in the last 10 years in, in higher ed at developing awareness around universal design for learning and, and inclusion more generally. Um, and we are getting uh, better at, at, at having that reflective lens on our courses and our services and, and at looking at, uh, you know, how hospitable and how inclusive they are. But often we become very, um, very guarded as soon as there's a field component. Now, what I've seen in my experience, particularly when I worked at McGill, um, is we often find ourselves as program coordinator, et cetera, working with field coordinators um, that we often feel that we have a gatekeeping role, that we should not disrupt the relationship that we have with those field coordinators, and therefore we shouldn't push the envelope. We shouldn't really be challenging, you know, what is, what is in, in, a, in, a, in a changing social context, what should be uh, reasonable in terms of inclusive practices, what, what should we do about changing, uh, you know, mindsets, et cetera, in, in the field. And when I've talked to, to coordinators, often, I mean, you can understand where they come from. Those, those relationships are often very difficult to build. Uh, they are tenuous. Uh, you almost feel grateful that, yes, that, that this field placement is willing to take your students on for this and that and, and these many students. So we don't want to disrupt that. But I think at the same time, I've been in practice when I was uh, head of accessibility at McGill in many situations where 
you realize that in that effort to be gatekeepers of standards that are external to us, we become very, um, very defensive. I'll give you an example. At one point, I worked with a PTOT department, physical occupational therapy, and they have a fourth year clinical placement. So, you know, three years of academic uh, classroom training, and then they go into the field for repeated um, sort of field placement in fourth year. And what we're seeing a lot of students with, um, you know, um, accommodations, et cetera, who had done very well academically, but were being put into field placements and failing quite dramatically in their fourth year, which was terrible because that meant that they would not be able to graduate, et cetera. And I remember we were called in onto one of these um, incidents and we were actually, uh, you know, uh, there was an opportunity for us to talk to the field coordinator directly. And uh, the problem with these students is the students who had always had access to technology, uh, you know, assistive technology in their device, uh, you know, speech to text, et cetera. And suddenly they had to write patient notes in five minutes between patients with a, with, with a pen and a piece of paper. And that's what they were failing on, that suddenly they could not, they had never been asked in the last nine, 10 years to write with a pen on a piece of paper in very limited time between patients. And they were being failed on their ability to take patient notes. So when we as accessibility services talk to field placement, we said, well, would they be able to access technology? Could you give them an iPad? Could you give them something on which they could actually type the, the patient notes? And the reaction was from the entire um, sort of uh, governing body, we should actually be doing this for everyone. This was in Quebec. We should actually be doing for this for everyone. And so that conversation led to actually uh, you know, a UDL solution where every single person doing a practicum was offered the possibility of having a tablet or, you know, or a device or a handheld device instead. And I think you see this shows how often the field environment knows that it's changing organically. This is a change society needs, things need to happen. But I think one of the problems is that uh, often the coordinators in the universities can be very very rigid, very scared of trying to, to trigger this conversation. So that's one, one, one aspect of this. I think it's also um, interesting for us because it confronts us with the fact that society standards are changing. Um, UBC, a few years back, uh, was confronted with a lawsuit from a resident, medical resident who is visually impaired, significantly visually impaired, really clinically um, you know, blind, who wants to become a surgeon and took the case to the Supreme Court and uh, UBC had to, you know, to step back and say, there was nothing actually stopping this person from becoming a surgeon. Now, I think that there are issues that will arise from this because, you know, you're not necessarily going to be able to have a full license uh, if you are, uh, you know, significantly uh, visually impaired. But I think it's led to, again, in Canada, to the Royal College of Surgeons starting conversation about saying, well, maybe we should rethink licensing. Maybe licensing, instead of being abroad, you are a surgeon to be, you are, uh, you know, a general physician, and it's fine to be visually impaired and be a general physician. It's fine to be a psychiatrist and be visually, you know, visually impaired. So some nuance there is starting to be created in these organizations, these external bodies. And I think we, with UDL, have a great uh, impact. There's a great impact that we can have in those conversations. So it's not just about the learning space, not just about academia or schools, but I think it's the time where we need to also use UDL as a discourse with these um, industry partners, uh, you know, field partners, to actually create a continuum. And because that's the principle of UDL, really, is that even as kids transfer from elementary school, uh, to secondary, to primary, secondary, and to, to um, post-secondary, they are no longer confronted with systems that are not cohesive and are contradictory and use different interventions. They can actually progress right through with a system that makes sense for them, and from their eyes, is creates a continuum. So I think now the continuum must, you know, must be extended into the workplace as well. And that's where 
field education, um, you know, definitely creates opportunities, I think, to, dis to discuss inclusion, but most, most uh, specifically UDL as well. I was also thinking while you were talking about um, partnerships uh, between partnerships from universities and school districts, um, at Fresno State, we're really focusing more toward residency, a residency model now, um, but some of our partners are in different places. And then, you know, we're educating our own students to look for UDL or to use it, and then they're not giving opportunities. Do you have those frictions as well? We have those frictions, and I think Christine's going to ask me a question later on in the chapter that I've offered, where I talk about the contradictions of even graduate students in inclusion um, in Canada, who sometimes do not see UDL principles model. So they could ironically be on a course on UDL without seeing the UDL principles model. And I think that creates a huge amount of frictions and, and, and questioning for students in the sense of I'm supposed to be learning this, I'm supposed to be doing this, but it's not being done in the interactions that I have in, in my, in my uh, graduate education. I think that can be seen in both uh, pre-service teaching where you know, UDL, and I know about, I can only talk about Canada, but in Canada, it's starting to pop up as a course content, but it's certainly not again being modeled in terms of practices. Um, there's a, I mean, we have to look at this from a socioeconomic perspective as well and political perspective. There's a huge pressure uh, in Canada to reduce the length of, of you know, BA qualification. So a lot of uh, campuses now try and squeeze three years into one which means that often you can have a day that lasts from seven in the morning to seven at night, right? And you do this for 12 months. There's only so much you can do in terms of modeling practices where you are prioritizing speed and, you know, speed and, and quick delivery. So I think it, it's, there's, a, there's a dual pressure there that we want to model more and more, but we also do it in a context where it's harder and harder to be them modeling this because simply of time pressures and, you know, external constraints. Um, so we see this in pre-service teacher teaching. We see we see this uh, in graduate education, and I think even in 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 service training. So often, uh, you know, I'm called in to, to come in and do consultancy gigs in in schools for for in-service teachers. I think again we have to question the in-service uh, sort of you know uh, training model because often it's very little time. We're very focused on you know this represents a lot of subbing, or we just have one PD day and everything gets needs to be done in one PD day. But very quickly with UDL, I find that, yeah, you can give a good keynote, you can do a little workshop, but people will often say right away, but I want to try this out. I'm going to have questions. I want to experiment. I want to implement it. I want to come back to you uh, and discuss those questions. And often we don't have the time, again, simply in terms of, of, uh, of constraints. So, um, yeah, I think we're doing pretty poorly in education in terms of modeling the values that we expect our students to have as they uh, as they enter the, the workplace in terms of, of UDL and certainly in inclusion. I like the way you say that modeling the values, but puts it in a nice light. Thanks. Related to that, I want to just touch on something else that you talk about um, early in the book, which has to do with uh, global and northern global south and north and global north dynamics and speaking of sort of like modeling values right like the UDL framework comes out of what we might think of as the global north usually referring to uh, North America really western Europe usually right um, so pretty narrow focus, but these are these are terms that are contested, right? The the language around how we talk about geopolitical centers of power has has shifted over time from things like the developing world, first world. So, 
just the point is that UDL really sort of emerges out of the U.S. in particular and has had worldwide impact. Inclusion really also sort of comes out of the Scandinavian countries, U.K., as well as the U.S., in what ways, can you talk a little bit about in what ways that sort of replicates the imperialism of the North, global, North, global North to the global South? And in what ways UDL maybe has yet to really draw on knowledge and wisdoms from outside of these regions? Thanks. So yeah, I would, just, I would divide this in three parts, my answer uh, to you. So the first one is, I think as, um, you know, any, any, any tradition, any theoretical tradition has origins, and this one happens to be North America, really, that's where it took birth. But I think we've now reached a level nearly three decades on where wherever something is born, you have to question the way it's being shared and, 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 and spread and, and, and enables other communities to empower themselves. Um, I'm not seeing an enormous amount of that happening within uh, the UDL um, sort of um, body of scholars. Um, and it's something that is difficult. Uh, I know, you know, you know, for having been a keynote that I've tried to organize a, a pan-Canadian conference on UDL, and we've had one in 2015, 2017, 2019. At the 2019, I certainly, um, you know, did a large call with our Indigenous scholars saying, you know, this is a conference for you and you should be part of this. And, and we want you to be engaged in, in, that, um, in that discourse. But we didn't manage to get indigenous scholar attendance, and I think it's because it is a long process and a long set of patterns to break. Right, once you're in that position where it's the the discourse of of uh, of the colonizer or the discourse of the of the you know developing world, the global north, it's very hard to break. So I think we have a global responsibility to just keep opening those doors and keep having that questioning every time you edit a book, even if it's not successful to think I have a duty here to make sure that there are other voices that are included in this book. Every time you do a collaboration in writing, every time you do a workshop to try and see if anyone is available and it's not going to happen at once. It's going to take, uh, you know, several years, maybe decades, but it is a global responsibility to keep calling and inviting and creating hospitable environment for um, indigenous scholars, global South scholars, uh, anyone really, um, you know, you spend some time in, in Latin America and I find that even that is a body of scholars that is not necessarily always invited into the discourse simply because they write in Spanish and we have great divide there between the English speaking UDL discourse and, and you know, Spanish speakers. So really an effort to be made and a collective responsibility. I think we also have to look at the fact that uh, any scholarship comes out of a uh, a publishing process, which is also a publishing machine, I would say, you know, there's some neoliberal, you know, undertones to that. Papers don't just appear, they are published by, by you know, by publishers, we have processes, those processes, we know them to be heavily biased towards Global North, uh, you know, writers in because of, because of theory, because the, the, the double blind process often calls on People who have the same background as you, judging whether you're using the theoretical frameworks they're used to, using the vocabulary they're used to. And if that's the case, you pass the double blind review. It's a lot harder for someone who works from outside these networks to successfully go through the double blind. So it's not as objective as we make it to be. So the result is that they're actually now growing uh, voices from India uh, and from the sub-Indian sub continent generally, uh, from sub-Saharan Africa, from Latin America, um, who are getting published locally, but are finding it really hard to break into the, the, the wider sort of, uh, you know, networks and the wider sort of publishing house and books, et cetera. So I think there we have a collective duty as well to put pressure on, you know, on our collaborators and our publishers and the people we work with to say, you know, it's time for us to change that in a very intentional way to make sure that we have that representation. The last point is that I think 
we have to realize that because, and that's where the colonized view, the colonizing view, I think, comes in. We, have, I think, and, and we all do it, I, I do it as well sometimes, to assume that because we've gone through this process of industrialization and development, everyone is going to follow historically the same process. So you assume that a country which is uh, arriving at, you know, at access, accessibility legislation, education, and inclusion legislation 30 years after us is going to follow linearly the same process that we've had. Well, we've made a lot of mistakes in that process. And I would say that we're not shining examples at the moment of how, how well it's gone and how successful it is. And we are seeing people in the global south or developing countries generally saying, hang on, we want to get to, we want to, get to where you are in inclusive education, but we don't want to make the mistakes you've made along the way. So could you actually show us the shortcuts so we can get there without repeating 30 years of, you know, of twists and turns? So I've done quite a bit of work in India, for example, and I'm, I'm involved in a, an inclusive uh, network of scholars in India. And it's really interesting because when you go out there, that's the questions that you get. Like, we don't want to approach this from a purely sort of legal uh, avenue and find ourselves in 20 years time saying it's not working in the field. What can we do to create authentic inclusion in the classroom from the get go? and go to something that looks like UDL without having to go to something like IEPs and, and, you know, and, and those, uh, those adaptations that along the way. So I think there's some really great discussions to have. And I think also we've got to realize that that context isn't our context in terms of accessibility to, to technology, which we take for granted, um, to things like, you know, when I go to India, I find it really sobering that my colleagues will say, yeah, 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 we understand everything you're saying in this workshop, but we've got a class of 120 students. Does that work in a class of 120 students, right? Looking at different, different variables altogether and making sure that this course that we are you know, propagating and, and perpetuating actually makes sense in these contexts because it's one thing in your class of 20 to say, oh, this is how I do UDL, but could you do it in the class 120? And can you do it without technology, right? And that's where it becomes interesting. That's where we need to start engaging in these important questions in terms of, uh, of you know, bringing in these voices into the UDL uh, discourse. Frederick, that was such a rich response, and I wish I could remember how to do like a tripartite response like that in my head. But one thing I think UDL models for folks is that uh, organizing things in threes is helpful. <laughs> so um, just looking at the time, you know, I wanted to maybe just throw a little bit of a curveball and just ask you, we really, there's so much in this book. It's rich. Uh, it's huge. What, maybe before we start wrapping up, do you want to highlight that perhaps we haven't touched on yet that's in there? Um, so it is a, a huge book. So I think we have 23 chapters and 30 odd uh, you know, contributors. I think what we tried to do with this was to show the complexity and the diversity of, of implementation itself. And I think uh, one mistake, which maybe we do in higher ed at the moment, but we probably do in the K-12 sector too, is that we talk about, you know, one size does not fit all in terms of pedagogy. But then we look at UDL and we assume that one size fits all in terms of implementation. And I think that's also where we're wrong, right? UDL implementation can look very different depending on your context, your, your you know, the, the, your community, um, the history of your institution, the previous organizational trends and mindset. So it can end up looking very different, but I think that's the, that's the richness of it because people don't really want a top-down model where it's just checklists and you're going, I'm going through this and I landed the same result. UDL is actually a principle that is, uh, leads you to a self-reflection on practice, a lens on your practice, a self-reflection on practice about how to move, if UDL is a spectrum, how to move more towards a richer UDL recipe than, than, the, than where you are now. 
So everyone will land in a different place and that's totally normal. As long as that, that, that reflection makes sense and the process that led you to those design choice makes sense, that result probably makes sense in terms of the design solutions because of the context that you're in. So I think that's what this book was trying to show that there's a multiplicity, a complexity of, of solutions, but um, it, it, that's fine and that's totally fine. And, but it's, the, it's that journey that's important. And that journey, once you are engaged with it, doesn't stop, right? You will continue to reflect on the, on the, on the, inclusion, on the inclusive design and come to, to build that toolbox that in a few years you'll, you'll have even more design solutions and you will continue that and get more feedback from your students and be able to engage further. So that's one important uh, aspect. The other aspect is, uh, you know, it's, it's structured in a way that looks at, well, there's my introductory you know, overview, but then it looks at really just moving away from accommodations. Then it talks about uh, implementing UDL in new environment. And I think that's important for us too in, in, in K-12 because you are going to meet people out there who say, but how do I do UDL in an arts class? How do I do UDL in a phys ed classroom? How do I do a UDL in a language lab? And that's the exciting part of the moment is they're not necessarily solutions, but there's a hopeful development of a rich scholarship there that we widen that envelope. It's not just about the humanities class or the English class or the math class. There's, there's more environments there that need to be explored where UDL can, can lead to interesting design solutions. And then towards the end, there's also... Um, areas for improvements. Well, I think that's very important for us in K-12 too. There are lots of, of, of reasons why we have to keep being self-critical by the way we, impl we implement UDL. And as we discussed today, one of those uh, immediate um, suggestions that we have to go beyond disability and look at race, look at sexual and gender identity, look at uh, culture and, and language, uh, first, you know, second language speakers, and to widen those design reflexes that we built, widen them to that full clientele as a, as a habit, right? So that we don't even think about it. We do it systematically. And then the very end, the last two chapters are really where a look on the post-secondary sector but I think, and I think you had a question that you were going to bring up, Christina, about uh, about um, about Sam's uh, Sam Johnson's uh, sort of chapter, where she talks about affordability of the post-secondary sector, and I think that leads us uh, to an important thing too, an important aspect even in K twelve, is I think so far we've looked at UDL simply being uh, a pedagogical dimension, a pedagogical flavor within the classroom, but we've got to think of the journey of these students getting to that classroom. And there's an awful lot of barriers there too. And if UDL is about analyzing from a barriers perspective, what are the hurdles that are um, you know, created in, in the journey of the students and then removing these barriers through design thinking, then we automatically have to think as well, first of all, of um, you know, school cultures, hidden curriculum, um, issues around uh, costs you know, and, uh, and, and affordability, even in K-12 to make sure that you know, not only are we doing inclusive practices in the classroom, but the journey that leads the students to the schools and to those classrooms are also barrier-free, that we actually create you know, a term that I see a lot of my Canadian colleagues talk about is hospitable environment, right? Well, how are you being hospitable? Well, certainly affordability and removing uh, you know, uh, financial barriers, for example, is a huge area of, uh, you know, of, 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 the, of the barriers. And here it leads us to, you know, in K-12, we're very quick sometimes say, well, in public education, we don't have the cost element, but I think that as well has to be demystified, you know. If you're interested in this, look at the concept of school stratification. Uh, you know, schools are now led into an environment where they have to compete just like, uh, like private schools, even if they're public. Compete for fun, compete for, for, for clients, because they are clients, you know, parents vote with their feet, they buy a house or they buy accommodation in an area where they want to school their kids. So there's a huge uh, amount of 
of buying and selling. There's a huge mechanization of access to, uh, you know, to secondary education. And that's going to be creating hurdles for our students as well. So we have automatically to engage with those, um, you know, with those issues as well. Hidden curriculum, when you look at, for example, second language learners, immigrant learners, you know, yes, you may have access to that school, but how hospitable, how welcoming is it going to be if you don't have uh, the extra cash to do, uh, you know, the, the, the extracurricular trip that happens on that week, or you can't go on that visit because your parents don't have the, can't afford the simple fee that you need to pay to be able to have access to something, right? So I think even in K-12, that's a huge um, element of the reflection that we need to have. And I'm glad Sam wrote that chapter because I think we don't talk about that enough, that it's social justice start in the wallet, right? So if you don't have access to things, even if the teacher is superbly inclusive once you're there, you can't have access to that space or that an opportunity, well, that's not an inclusive environment. Thank you so much for, I, I really like ending on that note. I think you had mentioned earlier something about how UDL now really leads us to some political considerations and the material ones and thinking of journeys to school, affordability of school, et cetera, really, really drive that point home. Thank you so much for, for that and for an excellent summary. Um, I guess to just to, to really wrap up um, and conclude, I'd love to know if you're able to share, uh, what are you currently working on next? Or what's, what's your, you know, what's your next project or what has you excited right now? So I'm currently, um, I'm still, uh, I've got a call out for chapters for a second book, which is actually looking at UDL um, case, study, case studies and implementation from teachers' voices and administrators' voices in the K-12 uh, sector, because after this one, we felt the importance of also, um, you know, having a call for, for K-12 uh, teachers. It is hard because a lot of teachers can feel that it's very daunting to write a chapter and gain an academic voice. So I think there's a lot of of support required and that's what I've offered to try and be um, really um, empowering and to be available and to do a lot of editorial support for uh, um, for chapters yes please if you uh, you know it's all, all the week still and until the weekend a quick little uh, a quick little proposal and then we'll we'll, we'll uh, sort of talk to you about how to to get it there but I think it's really important I think it's really really uh, urgent because there's a lot of really interesting things happening around UDL in both North America, you know, in North America, Canada, and the US. But a lot of these stories go um, unreported and undocumented. And unfortunately, that means that every other school board, every other school has to reinvent the wheel in some way. And we are at that level where we should not be reinventing the wheel. We should be sharing these uh, practices and these experiences and documenting them so that other people can borrow and share. That's the print, that's the spirit of UDL as well, that you are engage in that inclusive design thinking and you don't have to always go back to square one you can start where other people have left off and then continue to build on that collective uh, discourse that's out there so um, hopefully we'll see more and more of these uh, sort of teacher uh, narratives uh, that tell us exactly what it's like and, and there's some significant hurdles too uh, you know when you look at uh, implementing UDL in schools you know we see a lot of initial curiosity and, and, and momentum but sustaining that is hard so there's some interesting um, narratives that need to be told about when you succeed in, in creating a sustainable interest how do you do that and how do you connect with leadership etc and create a, a renewed culture that perpetuates itself uh, with regards to UDL. Thank you so much. I look forward to uh, hearing, writing, reading um, all the all the stories that will be in this uh, next book. And thank you so much for taking the time tonight to share with us what makes UDL and what makes your book an important resource for folks. So thanks, thanks again. It's been a pleasure.